0: Last Sunday, we celebrated eight years as a congregation here in, in Jamestown, North Dakota, and uh, we had a wonderful time together out on the block uh, over here um, celebrating what God has done, um, and I was reflecting on that this week, the, uh, the value of being together as a congregation and a culture of celebration that comes about as the result of the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world that Jesus Christ came into the world, the Messiah has come, the dirges are done being sung, and the celebration now is at hand. We eat and drink together, fully realizing that uh, that a way has been made. The The full realization of God's plan of redemption is here, and so we as a people can celebrate together with consistency with regularity despite what difficulty remains in our lives we know that Jesus has conquered it and has in one in one day will in fact when it will in fact return for his bride the church and bring her uh, bring her home that's why we celebrate we celebrate to pull back the curtain to look at what it looks like in eternity and that block last week is a glimpse of what it will look like In eternity, people gathered together, eating, drinking, celebrating the good news of of Jesus Christ, enjoying one another and loving one another for all all of eternity because of what Jesus has done. Okay, so I give you ample time to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church in Thessalonica Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the na- in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. to you. A life that is pleasing to God is a life of everyday faithfulness, and this is true for you as an individual and this is true for us as a church, living lives of faithfulness individually and together as a community of faith. And since this is true, we want to be sure, we want to be sure that we know what a life of faithfulness looks like. What does a life of everyday faithfulness that is pleasing to God look like? And then this section. Now we've we've been in First uh, Thessalonians for a couple of months now, but now in this section, as we get to chapter four, Paul starts out by saying, "Finally, and there's still like forty percent of the letter left. Um, maybe that's how you feel when I'm preaching. It's like now in conclusion, and then twenty more minutes." But But the reality here is that Paul is going to move into, and why he says finally, he's going to move into an instructive portion of the letter. Up until this point, he's been expressing his love for the Thessalonians. He's been expressing the love that the Thessalonians have for one another. He's been expressing to them how he desires to see them face to face. He's been expressing to them how they receive the word. He's been expressing to them how the gospel came to them. He's been expressing to them how... Thankful to God, He is for the reality that the word came to them and that it did its work and that they have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and to fulfill all of the promises of God to them. And so now, when we get into chapter four, He's saying, Now that has some implications for your day to day. Now you must walk in a way that is worthy uh, that God has called you into. And we see that right away in, in verse one. The Thessalonians are to, and every church, is to please God, to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. And so Paul is going to remind them of a handful of things that he told them uh, after chapter 4 here, that he told them when he was with them face to face. But he's also going to give them some new ideas as well in order to increase their faith, in order that they might have some more robust doctrinal content as they grow in maturity and, and increase their faith for the, the future. If you think back several weeks, you'll remember that this letter, when we introduced it, has the theme of everyday faithfulness. At least one of its themes is every, everyday faithfulness. It's the small things, it's the seemingly insignificant stuff of the minutia, the trivial. Those things in our lives really, genuinely matter. Diaper changes, spreadsheets, meal prep, math homework. The stuff that seems to you insignificant. God gives it meaning. It all really matters. And it matters because it gives opportunities for faithfulness, where the reward can only come from God. A life of everyday faithfulness and small minutia, seemingly insignificant things, comes because the reward can only come from God. The commendations and accolades of men uh, will not uh, will not show up when you're chopping onions, or when you're doing data entry. There's no newspaper write-up when you've folded your hundredth load of laundry this month. But you have a Father who sees in secret and will reward you. And we're tempted to think that it's large, famous, and fast. The church has bought into this lie. The world loves it, and we've grown to love it as well. We're tempted to believe that large, famous, and fast gives meaning. That that's what really matters. Big stuff is what really matters. But the Bible, again, is clear. It's quite the opposite. That doesn't mean that God doesn't do big things through people. He does. He genuinely takes small, simple, seemingly insignificant people and does amazing things through them. That is a reality. But... One thing that you'll note throughout church history when men and women do big things and when God uses them for big things, they're not aiming at big things. They're aiming at small, seemingly insignificant. They're aiming at faithfulness in everyday stuff of life. (laughs) Then when they aim there, they say things like, my life is to proclaim the gospel Of Jesus Christ, and to die and to be forgotten. And in many cases, the irony is that those people who genuinely have that mentality are not forgotten, and they're the books that we're reading hundreds of years later. But when you aim, when Christians aim at doing quote big things for God, what results might be big, but it's often not for God. Jesus tells the parable of the talents, and it's the servants who are faithful in little that are entrusted. With much, and Paul urges the Thessalonians in this section. Now that we are into this intra, uh, into this instructive portion of the letter, Paul urges the Thessalonians to be faithful in the everyday stuff of life. And we learn here that Paul wants the Thessalonians to be aware of holiness as a key part of everyday faithfulness. It is the primary component of everyday faithfulness. So as we consider these eight verses this morning, there are three questions that I think will be helpful in guiding our time together this morning. Three questions uh, that we'll answer, we'll answer through this text and our time together. So we kind of reverse-engineered these questions and we're going we're to talk about the text as we uh, answer them. The first question is, what is holiness? The second question is, how do we, together as a church, Live lives of holiness? And finally, what are the implications or what does this mean for us as a church? So those three important questions are going to guide our time together this morning. So first question, what is holiness? What is holiness? This is a word, we just sang it a bunch. We said that word many times in our congregational worship, musical worship this morning. But what is holiness? When you're singing it, you're not just singing a church word. You're saying something very specific about God, who God is, and who God has made us, and who God is making us. And the way that Paul structures this section, these eight verses here, you can't walk away from reading these eight verses and think that holiness is is something that God takes lightly or doesn't consider heavily the heavy emphasis on this passage is the holiness of God and the holiness that he calls us into. And so, look at verse 3. I hope you have a Bible still open on your lap or your app still open. Verse 3, Paul says this. This is a big statement here. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification is the process of being made holy. That is what sanctification is. To be holy is to be set apart or to separate out. Holiness is to separate out from something else. Christians are set apart to live according to God's purposes in order that they might represent Christ. To the world. Let me say that again. Christians are set apart to live according to God's purpose in order that they may represent Christ to the world. Holiness set apart. Holiness separate out. And so we, together as a local church, are set apart, but we're also being set apart. We're also being sanctified. Our sanctification is intimately tied to the sanctification of the others in this room. We're We're not a bunch of separate little individuals being sanctified. Sanctification does, in fact, happen at an individual level, but it happens at a corporate level as well. And so we are being sanctified individually, and we are being sanctified together as a church. Someone once said, at the individual level, sanctification is becoming who you are, but we could apply this again to the church as well. Sanctification, God sanctifying us, making us holy as a church, is making us more like Jesus. It is Jesus preparing his bride, purifying his bride for his return. He purified his bride with his blood through his sacrifice, but we together are being made into that perfect bride. So, sanctification is becoming who you are or becoming who we are. And God has declared through us holy, set apart through the cross of Christ. This is the the point, the place in history where our holiness comes from. It comes not from our work or from our acts. Paul asks in the Galatia, to the Galatia, to the church in Galatia, he says, that "You who were were made holy because of by the cross, are you now being perfected in the flesh?" No, we're not. We're being brought to further holiness through a work of God in our lives. But God declared us holy at the cross of Christ, and Jesus died on the cross, taking our sin upon Him. And this is what we say even when we profess faith in Christ. We say, I believe that Jesus took my sin. I believe that I am forgiven in Him. But there's another component here that we have to understand. Because when our sin went to Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness comes to us. We did sin, and we did a lot of sinning, and so that made us unrighteous. This puts us in the position of needing a sacrifice, of needing saving. Jesus never sinned. And so that made him perfectly righteous. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes our sin upon him. The sin of all those who believe goes to Jesus Christ. But then there's an exchange that happens. It's not just here you go, but there's something that comes back to us in that moment as well. And it's the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ because Jesus never sinned. His righteousness is plentiful, abundant, overflowing, Given to all those who receive him by faith. If you're wondering what the mechanics of your salvation are, this is what it is. Sin going to Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. Righteousness coming to us. Making us righteous. Again, this is often referred to as the great exchange. Sin. Righteousness. This is what we get. And everyone who comes to Christ by faith receives forgiveness and the perfect righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. We are granted his righteousness. And we would call this positional righteousness. So when God looks at you right now, sitting in this room in a pew, he sees one who is perfectly righteous. Because of what Jesus did on your behalf. Because Jesus imputed or credited to you his righteousness. And so, because you who have trusted Jesus are positionally righteous, God looks at you and that sets you apart from the world. That makes you separate from the world. It makes us together a people. It makes us together a church. It means that we together are holy. But we, now there's the other side of this coin. We still live in sinful flesh individually. We live in a world that is still saturated in sin. And so even though we've received the righteousness of Christ, and are positionally righteous. When God looks at us, he says, righteous. Even though we're positionally righteous before God because of Christ, we still, in fact, sin. God is making us what he has declared us to be. That's the point and the purpose of this section. Declared holy, the Thessalonians are declared righteous, they're declared holy, they're set apart, but they're also to become holy. So we don't just get to chapter 4 and say, we're done. This doesn't matter to us because we've got what we need. No, in fact, we are something and we need to become something. We are holy and we need to become holy. Those two things might seem contradictory in our minds, but in fact, they are the reality of the situation. You are holy. You are set apart. If you are to die today and you have trusted Jesus, you would spend eternity with God in heaven but as long as he leaves you here on this earth in sinful flesh, you will continue to need to become holy, to live lives that reflect God and reflect his holiness. We are holy and being made holy. And holiness is given to us by God. Holiness is Rooted in God's character. God is, in fact, set apart. He is other. He is different from us. He, in his kindness, has placed his image upon us. But, in fact, there are many ways in which God is set apart from us still. He is all-powerful. He is ever-present. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. In these ways, we do not reflect God. We are very limited. We are very weak. We, in fact, are limited to one place. Time and space binds us. We have a distinct beginning. God is set apart. He is holy. No beginning. Always present. All-powerful. There are ways that we do, in fact, reflect God in holiness, in his character, in the love that he puts on display throughout Scripture, in the patience that he shows towards us as wayward sinners, in the mercy that he demonstrates to us. These are all ways that God's character can be reflected by us because we have God's image placed upon us. And God spoke to Moses in Leviticus 19.2 and tells Moses, Speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. God tells the people of Israel that their holiness comes as a result of his holiness. They will be holy because he is holy. Because he has given them his statutes and his commands and his law. And if they live according to the things that God has stated, they will in fact be set apart. They in fact will be holy. God gives ways. Right in right after that, Leviticus 19 2, he gives ways that they examples of their set apartness. And God says that by honoring parents and by keeping the Sabbath and by rejecting idolatry. The people of Israel will be set apart, and we similarly will be set apart as we walk in those things as well. As we walk in the freedom to mirror and image God's character, we will be made holy as we have been made holy. The holiness that God's people have is given to them because God is holy. And the holiness that God's people put on display is seen in their freedom. To live according to God's commands given in Scripture. I'm going to say that again. The holiness that God's people put on display is seen in their freedom. To live according to God's commands given in Scripture. The Apostle Peter picks this up in the New Testament. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Because God is holy, we are commanded to be holy in all of our conduct. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. The will of God for you is that you are made holy. And the example of holiness that Paul gives to the Thessalonians comes right after that statement in verse 3 in the area of sexual purity. And so that leads us to ask a second question. How do we live lives of holiness? How do we live lives of holiness? Look at verse 7. Paul writes, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. In an area where holiness is often jeopardized, one for the Thessalonians and two for us, very clearly, is in the area of sexual purity. It's not only true for us, again, true for most of human history, all of human history, really. The Thessalonians lived in a culture where religious life would have included a heavy dose of fertility. And promiscuity. And so the approach Paul takes in these matters, the biblical approach, would have been quite foreign to a majority Gentile congregation. They would have grown up in a culture where they would have worshipped gods of fertility and where promiscuity would have been the result. Our culture, similarly, has a high rate of promiscuity, but not because we celebrate Fertility, but because we celebrate infertility. Not in not the ability to have children, but the ability to refuse to have children. The ability to engage in physical intimacy without the, quote, risk of pregnancy gave way to cultural shifts and rise of organizations in the last, in the last several decades like Planned Parenthood. And after the 1960s, and probably even earlier, people who had no intent of having children believed that they should be able to freely engage in physical intimacy on their terms. And so we have phrases in 2023 like, One Night Stand. Murder mills run at capacity under the auspices of choice. And no kids and two dogs is now the new family unit. Our culture doesn't only put the cart before the horse. We want the cart and no horse. Thessalonica was a city that worshiped fertility, and we seem to do the opposite, but the result is the same. Sexual immorality runs rampant. And living a life of faithfulness to God's command is completely countercultural in this area. Holiness is primarily countercultural. God has told the Thessalonians. Through Paul that his will for them is their sanctification. And that means to live countercultural in this area. And for a local church like us, holiness is living according to God's word, even when the rest of the world is going an entirely different direction. The world is confused, freedom with slavery. True freedom isn't doing what you want when you want to do it. That's what the world tells you. The world tells you you're free to do what you want when you want to do it. That's slavery. Because we affirm the fact that flesh is still, in fact, sinful, our inclinations, our appetites, our desires, our directions, our emotions are all affected by sin. You are, apart from Christ, enslaved to sin. And you may live in a society that tells you are free, but until you are free from the sin that entangles you, you are in fact enslaved. True freedom is not the ability to do what you want when you want to do it. True freedom is the ability to live according to God's word. That is the freedom that Jesus Christ gives to us. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, gives us true freedom. Because the good news is that we didn't only send our sin to Jesus, but he sent his perfect righteousness to us, freeing us, creating in us a new man, a new creation, born again, to live according to his commands. Our father, Abraham, or our father Adam, who imputed to us his sin, now gives to us, through Jesus Christ our Lord, Jesus gives us his righteousness, his freedom. Jesus frees us from slavery to sin and gives us the ability to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. And so Paul isn't wagging his finger at the Thessalonians saying, you guys, you really screwed up this time. No. He's saying, God has made you something. Here's how to live like God has made you something. He has made you a people. Here's how to live like God has made you a people. He has made you a church. Here's how to live a life that is pleasing to God. A life that you are now f- truly free. To be holy as a church is to love God's word and to live according to it. Not fully understanding everything about it, but but recognizing that we live by faith, recognizing that we trust God and all that he has told to us in his word and that living according to it is far better than living according to anything else. To be a church, and to be holy, is to love God's word, apply it in every day of every area of life, And including this area that Paul introduces, the idea of sexual morality. Lives of holiness are lived not only when we say what God says, but when we believe what God says. And not only when we do what God says, but when we believe what God says. Many people live moral, upright lives. They think this is probably a pretty good idea if I'm going to be successful in life. But they don't believe what God has said about moral upright living. And God doesn't tell us here in First Thessalonians to lead moral upright lives to earn something from him. But rather to represent him and the forgiveness and freedom that comes through him by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Anything that God has commanded in Scripture is the best option for us. We might, must fight to believe that's true. Everything that God has commanded to us in Scripture is the best option for us. But God isn't making it rain on all the parades. It, Satan wants you to believe that the way of living that the Bible outlines is boring or uncool or impractical. So we say things like, well, if you were in my position, We dismiss sin so easily, thinking to ourselves, this doesn't apply here. The world is always trying to convince you that God doesn't want you to be happy. And so moral commands like living a life of sexual purity is in fact, is in fact questioned. Call names. This person is a prude. Surely God wouldn't tell you something to do things that don't make you happy. But that misses the point entirely. Because living a life of holiness in everyday faithfulness is the key to lasting happiness. A blessed life comes through living according to God's word. Not because a check shows up for a million dollars in your mailbox. That would be more of a trial than a help anyways. But because by living according to God's word, everyday faithfulness, those who are entrusted with little entrusted with much, your reward comes from the Lord and not from man. Living a life of holiness is doing things God's way, not ours. This isn't a burden, it's a blessing. It's not a joyless routine, but the pathway to a joy-filled life. Paul says that it is those who are outside of Christ, do not know God, and live in the passion of their lusts. You hear the slavery in that statement. They live in the passion of their lusts. But we are free to exercise self-control in holiness and honor. And so the question again, how do we live lives of holiness? We joyfully believe that God's ways are better than ours and live according to those ways because of the freedom that we have in Christ in order that we might represent Christ to the world. That brings us to our last question. What does this mean for us as a church? Now, we're going to answer that a little bit because Paul is writing this passage specifically to a church, to a group of people. He's commanding them all to live lives of purity, to live lives of holiness. He's commanding all of them to do all of this. Embedded within Paul, what Paul writes here, is a call back to the moral law. John's been preaching through this this year when he gets the opportunity to preach. There are two of the Ten Commandments, probably more here that we could explore. But two are given here. One, you shall not commit adultery in Deuteronomy 5.18. And two, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife in Deuteronomy 5.21. When asked in the New Testament, Jesus in the moral, says about the moral law. This is in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, or him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, commandments depends the law and the prophets. Paul, look at verse 6 in our passage. That no one, they should not live in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. This is loving your neighbor as yourself. How are we to love our neighbor as yourself or as ourself? Deuteronomy 5.18, you shall not commit adultery. Deuteronomy 5.21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We often think of sin in this capacity as personal. As hidden. In a very real sense, it is. But the reality of what Paul is writing here is that sin, unchecked at any level of the individual, will in fact surface. Small sin leads to bigger sin. Browsing websites with adult content opens the door for adultery. Entertaining lust opens up the door for impropriety in relationships. No man wakes up on Monday and decides to cheat on his wife without serious consideration and small sinful compromises along the way. It's incrementally giving oneself over to thoughts that lead to bigger thoughts and even actions. And your sin, even if it seems small and private, if it's allowed to continue unchecked, will lead more and more private sin that will evolve into public sin, and you will make all kinds of excuses for it. Paul says that each individual should know how to control his body in holiness and honor. It's just like some, like, like, osmosis into your brain but because of what God commands us in his word over and over again in this area. How do we know how to control our body in holiness and honor? By understanding how God speaks to us, commands us how to live in these matters. And it's for the sake of the whole church. Again, verse 7, God has not called us for impurity, but to holiness. Us, we, together. Not to impurity, but to holiness. In 1 Corinthians, there's an example. Paul writes to that church in Corinth. There's a matter of sexual sin, and Paul says that even a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And what Paul means is that sinful compromises, even those that happen in secret, impact the church. Therefore, Paul says in our passage that the church that ignores sin at any level disregards not man, but God himself. In verse 8, therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man, or not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so this passage then operates as a Stark warning to us as a church. Sometimes Christians try to scare themselves out of sinning by giving reminders that God is ever present and he knows everything. So like, You're never alone if God's primary way of deter- deterring you from sinning is because he's some creepy, voyeuristic person looking in your window. But that's not who God is. And that's not Paul's argument. Sure, it's true that God is everywhere all of the time and nothing goes unseen. But that's not what Paul says should prevent this kind of behavior, this kind of sin. Paul rather appeals by saying he's that unchecked sin in secret, that sin that seeks to devour the individual, loves company. That kind of sin loves company. Sin in the quiet of your home, entertaining lust in your mind, or in the front of a computer screen, or in the bedroom with someone who you're not covenanted with in marriage, this kind of sin turns you into a kamikaze pilot and the course for the heart of the local church, directly for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Satan in the world wants you to believe that your sin doesn't affect others. And if you've bought that, that's a lie. Your sin always has implications for others. Every time. No one ever sins in a vacuum. But Paul tells us secret sin is a suicide bomb mission that comes with a countdown clock that you can't read. You might be able to avoid for a little while the consequences, but you'll find yourself in a heavy population, populated area. It's going to go off and the casualties will in fact be great. No one sins in a vacuum and sin seeks to pull others into the blast Radius. So the question, how do we live, or what does this mean for us as a church, is that we, as individuals and together as a congregation, seek to put sin to death. That we recognize that we have, in fact, been given everything that we need as a church and you as an individual. Paul finishes his section by saying that we have been, in fact, given the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity dwells within you, dwells within us. As a congregation, God has given us his word. It's clear what he says about these types of sins. And so we as a congregation must stay vigilant. We as individuals must stay vigilant in order that we might put this sin to death. You and I have been given everything we need. You don't have to go home and figure out a strategy. The strategy has been given to you. God's word, the Holy Spirit, which resides, resides in you, put to death sin. That leads us to think about a conclusion this morning. The warning is clear, but again, we don't have to guess what the mitigation strategy is. It's given to us throughout the pages of Scripture over and over again. So, the first thing that I would say to you is that you are in fact empowered by the Holy Spirit to live lives of everyday faithfulness, loving holiness, and putting off sin. Friends, we must believe, and believe joyfully. Not in a humdrum, oh my goodness, God is the angry, strict dad who's shaking his finger at me and slapping my knuckles with the ruler. But the reality that God's ways are better than our ways should in fact bring great freedom and great joy. Friends, you don't have to guess. You don't have to to guess what the best way to live is. The God who created you and created all things, who spoke it all ex- into existence with a word, gives you graciously everything that you need, everything that you need to know in order to live in a way that believes that his ways are better than yours. Us, we, in our hubris, we think that we know how to live. We think that each individual knows what's best for that individual. Friends, there is none of you in this room, myself included. There is no one on the face of the earth that knows how to live better than the one who spoke that person into existence. We must joyfully believe God's ways are better than ours. And if you, you read scripture and you come to in instructive portions like this, and you think to yourself, man, this is such a drag. Pray to your Father, who loves to give good gifts to his children. Pray to your Father that he would cause you to joyfully receive this truth by faith. We live according to these ways, God's ways, because of the freedom we have in Christ, in order that we might represent Christ to the world around us. Young men... Men in general, you are especially under attack in these areas. You're a vulnerable group. You're the sick one in the herd that's off on the side that the lions are chasing down to tear apart. And if you let your guard down, you will find yourself in the role of the kamikaze pilot aimed at the heart of the local church friend But the psalmist knew it. He said, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? (laughs) genuinely is that simple. Saturate yourself in the word of God. Confess your sin to one another. Turn from it and encourage one another to turn to Christ. You may slip up 10 times, a million times, in your time here on earth. But Jesus Christ's sacrifice is fully sufficient. This isn't a problem that only affects young people, though. And you know that our tar- culture targets everyone, everything is always saturated. You know the temptations are great, and don't be so naive to think that Satan isn't bullish on the strategy to get churches to overlook sin. To look you all to, to, for you all to overlook sin. Smutty romance novels on the thing at the grocery store. I don't know what the thing is. The, the thing that spins. TVs and movies that salivate promiscuity, modesty giving way to nudity. Marriage covenant gives way to free love. A device in every one of your pockets or purses that can access infinitely grotesque and depraved media. (laughs) Satan would love for us to poo-poo these realities. To say this doesn't matter. Do what you want when you want to do it. Nobody's going to call you on it. It's just between you and yourself. But praise be to God. Praise be to God. He has freed us from the slavery to sin that seeks to destroy us. And seeks to destroy all those it can lure into its blast radius. Maybe you've been in the blast radius before. But praise be to God that he has freed you even for those who become collateral damage of the secret sin that turns into public sin of others. God is your comforter. He is the one that can restore to you all of your lost years. He is the one that can restore to you everything that you feel like has been taken from you because of the sin of others. And praise be to God. He forgives even those whose sin is so great that it seeks to pull others down with it. He's given us his Holy Spirit that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to him not enslaved to the tyranny of your own flesh, where your appetites and your desires and your inclinations rule over you with a rod of iron, but a king who puts his robe upon you and calls you his son, who calls you his daughter despite how many times we spit in his face, despite how many times we tell him that it doesn't matter to us what he says, praise be to God. We're not enslaved to the tyranny of our sinful flesh that inclines us to the very things that are abhorrent to God, but he creates us afresh, in the image of his Son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him and through him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything, might, everything he might be preeminent, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He has made peace by the blood of his cross for even the most wayward of sinner. Praise be to God. Friends, if you're here in this place today and you feel condemnation, it may be for a purpose. The Word of God here is to cut us. It is to lay us bare. And if the Word has done that work on you today, know that everyday faithfulness begins today. You realize your disobedience in the matter of sexual purity and you realize that God is holy and has called you to be holy as well. You long for a heart that joyfully acknowledges God's ways are better than yours. If that's you, forgiveness is real and it's for you. The righteousness of Christ is real and it's for you. There are consequences for your sin and you may live with those the rest of the time that you live on this earth. But God is faithful for to, for, to forgive. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. A life of everyday faithfulness can begin today. And you can mourn over your sin in the past, but you are free to rejoice that God has forgiven you in Christ, set you apart. Your sin is nailed to the cross. You bear it no more because Jesus Christ bore it on your behalf. Your Savior bore it for you. And it is entirely removed from you. No matter how far you travel to the east, you will never meet the west. And that is as far as your sin is removed you from you it is taken and its deadly effects have no claim on you and for those who are freed from the deadly effects of sins those ones are free to live everyday lives of faithfulness and holiness friends everyday faithfulness begins today because Jesus makes all things new Final concluding point, very briefly. The will of God for us as a church is our sanctification. We are not a people who do not have direction or purpose. but We are a people who God is making holy, who God has set apart for his purposes. God's will for us as a church is this. We have not been called for impurity, but to holiness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for the clarity that comes to us through it. God, would now in these moments that remain, would you cause us to see clearly an area where we have been harboring sin and come to you for forgiveness. If there is a need for anyone in this place to confess God, would they do so freely, recognizing that Jesus Christ made a way. That through his perfect sacrifice, there is now no need for them to fear condemnation and death. God, would you give us the clarity of mind to see that you have called us to lives of everyday faithfulness and holiness. That you have, in fact, set us apart for your purposes God, would we seek to be set apart as those who have, in fact, been set apart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.